Hey there, you got Jeff. I've got about 15 seconds before my dog barks again, so I'll make this quick. If you're looking to connect with other customer success leaders who are trying to operationalize customer success in their companies, come over to gaingrowretain.com and join now. Hello, and welcome back to another episode of Gain, Grow, Retain. We had this one on the hopper, so we are going back to an old format where we're uh, interviewing a leader in the space. We have Chris Hicken with us today, who is the co-founder and CEO of Nuff Said, which helps to centralize the world's work apps and focuses people on the work that matters. And we got into a, a deep discussion with Chris around customer success and how people prioritize their time in that field, uh, how we think about the technology that they have in terms of some AI and machine learning that they're building into Nuff Said. Um, and then really the, the bulk of the conversation centered around uh, the idea of health indicators and uh, how we're thinking about trying to make those as proactive as we can uh, and what goes into that. So I uh, hope you all enjoy. Welcome to the Gain, Grow, Retain podcast. Yeah, so, so Nuff said started as an idea when I was working at, uh, at user testing. So user testing, enterprise software company that helps people build great customer experiences. I joined the company really early. I was employee number five. And what I saw over the course of my almost eight years at the company was that people were increasingly overloaded with information, uh, distracted, um, and, and these were these were coming from all of the, all of our communication tools, email, chat, SMS, LinkedIn, report, you know, uh, weekly reports, uh, all these different platforms, every SaaS pl platform wanted, wanted our attention. What I found was increasingly people were, well, they're spending more time at work. So people were spending 12, 13, 14 hours a day at work. But especially towards the end of my time there, I felt like people were getting less done in their job than they ever had. And so I thought, you know, this, and this problem is going to continue to get worse as, you know, more investment dollars are going into software, uh, more different communication channels are coming into our worldview. It's harder to spend time focusing. And so my, uh, the, the ideal, the idea for enough said in our vision for the future is that we create a brain that sits alongside you at work. And that's an AI powered brain. And that brain one, it filters out all of the, the noise and distractions of your day, but more importantly, it helps you focus on work that matters for your job and your position. So it's not just about communication that matters, but it's tasks that you can do today to move the needle for your job or for your department. And so that's, that was what, that's what started the, the whole concept of Nuff Said. That's a big vision for a company. And so what we're doing is we are building the AI, these brains, uh, uh, department by department. So we're building a brain initially for the customer success slash revenue retention group within a, a company, but then we're going to develop one for sales, product management, engineering, marketing, et cetera. That's really awesome. So the idea then too, is that you um, are sitting, you know, as, as kind of the sidecar to, you know, myself, whoever the customer success person is, as you're sitting uh, alongside of that, then you essentially have all the inputs from all these areas um, and you're essentially helping me prioritize my day, think about the things I have to respond to, and really just uh, helping me be most effective with my time at the office. That's, that's exactly right. Every day you're going to leave the office having ac accomplished the most important things you could have done each day. That's awesome. I like the, I like the vision too. Um, well, I know, you know, as we were going back and forth and, and somewhere I think naturally that goes alongside of this is uh, in our world and a lot of times in the customer success realm, you know, is thinking about health scores and prioritization of accounts and, um, you know, are we actually driving value for our customer and knowing that a customer success uh, individual contributor could have something from, you know, 100 customers up to 500, up to 1,000. Um, 
the idea of a health score has become really prominent in the industry. And I think what we continue to see from our side of things is that, um, you know, they're trying to automate health scores. They're trying to get a lot of things crammed into it. So I need relationships. I need product. I need uh, feedback surveys. I need um, all these different things getting into that. So um, what are your initial thoughts? I don't know if you really feel strongly about an account health score or what you've seen, but what are your initial thoughts just around, um, around trying to build some sort of score or metric that really helps somebody prioritize their accounts from the customer success side of things? Well, at a high level, I agree, especially if you're an executive. I understand the drive to simplify the overall portfolio health and get to a number or a metric that helps me understand where there's risk. So I, I understand why people are driving towards that. The, the biggest problem with health scores, and I would, actually, I would actually go beyond health scores and say the biggest problem with how customer success is managed today is that almost all decisions are driven off of lagging indicators or vanity metrics. So the, the, typically the four metrics that, I, that most companies are driving decisions off of are usage, retention rates, and by retention rates, this could be net or gross retention rates. Advocacy, customer advocacy, which is often comes in the form of NPS or referrals. Or uh, goals, have I, have I added value to my customer? Have I helped my customer achieve the goals that they set out to achieve? All of those metrics can take six months, nine months, 12 months to come to fruition. And in the meantime, there's tons of data that the company can be collecting about that relationship with the customer to understand where there's risk in the portfolio. So my, I guess my, my take on, on health scores overall is that in general, health scores are driven by usage data. Usage data is not a helpful metric in, in discovering whether or not the account, your account has any risk. And we can, we can go into specific examples of that in a moment if, if you'd like. Um, and the, the result is that health scores end up, uh, the, the VP of customer success or the chief customer officer is not able to leverage the health score today to drive improvement in the portfolio and, redu- and reduce risk overall. Yeah, let's go back to the idea of even just this whole notion of calling it a health score. That makes it sound like it's a, a single number. I, I really like to think about it in, as a set of indicators, health indicators, even like key health indicators you could think of it as. Because the reality is we've seen so many of our clients and people in the marketplace just trying to build a score that tells you is the, is the account healthy or not. And then nobody understands what it means. There's two things I think that are important. One is, is, is being able to tell if you've got a problem, basically predict whether you have a renewal risk. And then two is what are you going to do about it? And if the score is just some, you know, black magic number, then like, what are you going to do about that? Like, you don't even know where to start looking. So we, we tend to think about it as a set of health indicators, I, I guess. So I wonder if you agree with that. Uh, I wholeheartedly agree with that. And the, and the buckets that I would use to uh, the data that I'd want to, gather during the course of the relationship that are kind of more of the indicators or the different buckets of risk are around the customer's maturity, the product, the people, and the pricing. That's how I bucketed them. I've, I've seen them bucketed in different ways. Um, and I think there are questions that you want to answer under each of those four buckets to discover where the true risk is in the portfolio. And to your point, Jay, it's, it's not enough to detect risk you also have to be able to trigger actions, meaningful actions that a CSM can take to reduce risk. So these could be company approved actions. Uh, these could be industry best practice actions, but it has to be a combination in order to reduce risk. There has to be a combination of detect risk, trigger an action. And I think those, those, that's kind of our philosophy on this kind of AI that we're building for CS. It has to be able to do both things. Yeah, that's absolutely. 
And that's something that we've seen, um, I think, as well as you, you know, we've, we've seen some customers that have over-engineered, over-engineered the score so much that there's literally confusion among the CSM team about, like, I don't even know what the score means. I don't know where it comes from. And therefore, I have no idea, what, like, what I should be even doing with the customer, which in and of itself is, like, the opposite of what you wanted in the first place. Uh, so it's just, you know, funny how they that don't use it. Yeah, it manifests itself. Yeah, the, the reality is most, yeah, it might be, it might be overreaching to say this, but most customer success teams are not using their health score uh, reg effectively and regularly as a part of managing their business anymore. And it's, and it's because, and it's, by the way, it's not because the health score tools are bad. It's just that we're not feeding the health score tools the right data, a complete set of data that's needed to generate an accurate view of the overall customer uh, risk. Totally agree. I want to dig into your categories for a second, because the one that really stuck out to me is pricing. I'm intrigued. Tell us a little bit more about how you think about that. Yeah, so there, there's lots, lots of different um, factors that go into pricing. And I think the first, the first question that you have to ask when going after pricing is, what uh, does the problem solve a severe and ongoing problem for the customer? Um, usually you can connect your, pro your, your product to some kind of problem that the customer is experiencing. Um, but you need to understand how severe the customer thinks of, about that problem because you can't really come up with a price until you can answer that question effectively. So pricing starts with answering that question. That, by the way, that question is difficult because a lot of times customers aren't willing to give you an, indica you know, an indication of how severe the problem is because they, you know, they want the leverage to be able to negotiate price in the future. But it, it definitely starts with understanding that, that question. And then the second question is, is the problem that's being solved uh, by the product severe enough to, ju to justify the price? So you need to get, you need to get an understanding of uh, price banding, um, you know, if someone rates the problem that they're experiencing a five out of 10, what does that probably mean for you in terms of your, your ability to price that product for them in the future and your ability to grow your, your ARR with that customer going forward? Um, and then there are other kind of factors in pricing too. For example, um, you know, discounting is a big one. Um, and here's what I mean by that. I'm gonna go back to an example at user testing. We found that customers who are unwilling to invest a certain amount every year to install user testing probably weren't thinking about user testing as an ongoing product that they wanted to use. They were probably thinking about it more as a single project. Like, hey, we're releasing a website, we wanna do some user testing. So help me solve some short-term pain, and I don't wanna pay a lot to solve that short-term pain. So, but what, but what would happen in the sales cycle is, you know, salespeople wanted to get deals done, so they would offer discounts. And when, when we got below a certain threshold, we found that we were dipping into a clear indicator from the customer base, from the, from, the, from the market, that that customer was unwilling to invest in user testing as a long-term solution to their, for their business. So I think, I think discounting, you have to look, there are actually three or four different vectors that you have to look at discounting to, to determine risk in the portfolio, but that's one of them. Um, and then the last one on pricing is around um, alternatives. So it's, it's, it's important for you to understand, one, where, where is competitive pressure coming from? So not only which companies are you feeling pressure from, but what types of pressure are you feeling? Are you feeling a pricing? Are you feeling pricing uh, uh, pressure? Are you feeling a, a feature set of, you know, you know, total product pressure? So you, you need to understand what aspects of alternatives are creating price pressure for the customer success team. So uh, those are kind of the four main uh, items. And I think you can collect, um, you can collect 
the data to answer these questions through um, analyzing communication that's going back and forth with the customer. That's actually a big, a big way to collect that data. I think you can do some clever uh, surveying of customers throughout the course of the relationship, especially earlier when they're not thinking about renewal yet. You can kind of uh, tease out some of how they're thinking about the problem set. Uh, some of it will happen during QBRs. Some of it you'll be able to get during onboarding, but they're kind of like you know four, maybe five different ways that you'll be able to answer these questions over the course of your relationship with them. Yeah, I, so two things that really come to mind for me as you talk through that. One is um, I like the way that you think about trying to gather those points of feedback at varying different areas, because I think that as we think about the customer journey, um, not only do we want to think about it from the customer lens, so how is the customer actually going through this, this journey and the flow, and, and how are they going to perceive handoffs, how are they going to perceive uh, these communications, but I think an underlying element that's really missed, um, at least from what we've seen in a lot of our work, is is the those points in time that we want to gather feedback from the customer, and we feel like is important, um, and I think a ton of companies have missed that from our perspective, right? After onboarding, hey, it would be great to understand how did our onboarding and implementation go? How was the configuration process? You know, was our team attentive, and do we feel like it's the right process for them to go through? Um, and, you know, same thing at varying points, like you said, even, even talking about pricing, uh, the second thing that comes to mind is we, we did a, a really cool project a couple years ago for a company around um, pricing and their willingness to pay survey and uh, really tried to align it. So they actually had a very similar challenge to what you described where uh, they had a product that could be used on an ongoing basis for some large enterprise type clients. They also had a, a product that could be used by a small mom and pop one time for one project. And uh, they allowed people to, to move in and out of their contracts on a monthly basis. So you'd see revenue spike and decline a lot in monthly cycles. And, you know, so they had literally, if I was their CFO, I think I would probably have a heart attack because you'd see a ton go up, a ton go down, and it, you had no consistency. And so part of our project was to try and figure out, you know, what are those thresholds that people are willing to pay for certain features and for certain outcomes that they're looking to achieve, how, you know, actually talking to customers themselves about how they were using the product to actually deliver an outcome and what they were trying to achieve. Um, so that was the second thing that comes to mind, but it's really cool um, for our, for us, the work that we did, I thought it was a really cool um, project because you actually got to see, uh, like you said, these varying points of feedback come together and really how the pricing mattered at the end of the day in order to drive the right packaging and um, deliver that to the, the customer appropriately and then getting the sales team to buy into that, right? You can't sell this customer this type of package or product. Um, so it's another thing, but um, yeah, Jay, I'm curious what you just thought of that too. It was the most valuable project we've ever done, but we're not a pricing firm, you know, but it had such a huge impact on customer success. We felt compelled to do it in that case. We'll probably never do another one. Although the ROI was so huge for that company looking back 18 months, like we, we probably should do more of that work, but it just, it's not just the price point. It's the structure of the agreements and how they factor into it with the rest of the marketplace is doing around that type of solution. Um, so I like your categorization. I haven't ever thought about it of putting all those things in a pricing category sounds like it's really a value yeah it is it, it's 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 uh and it's really a um, it's a product market fit in a lot of ways question it's you know what pro you know the pain that's being solved how severe the pain is what you're willing to spend to solve that pain and the way that you ask the question and i think you you, you guys both brought this up the way that you ask the question and the timing of asking the questions is very important because if you ask at the wrong time if you ask that question too close to renewal the customer will not give you honest feedback because they want to have pricing leverage and come negotiation time and so how you ask the question when you ask the question that's really important to get accurate data that you could take action on in the future and the fact that you're doing as a as a 
uh, as a customer journey, customer success focused firm, the fact that you guys can do pricing as well is absolutely huge. I think it's one of the, th one of the few things uh, that customer success teams can do to dramatically improve their results. And it's one of the last things that companies actually pay attention to because pricing is almost always created by the marketing team driven largely by very vocal salespeople. And the salespeople are not thinking about what happens post-sale once the product is being adopted and the, and the levers that you can use to drive increased adoption and uh, revenue growth within, within the team. So, I, so I, I guess what I'm saying is I wholeheartedly agree with you that it's, it's a huge opportunity and it's awesome that you, that you provide that service. You mentioned earlier just about usage and you know, how uh, it can largely be a lagging indicator and also really you know, you're, if you're measure, measuring usage, you're not necessarily, um, you're associating more about logins and, and where they're using the tool and not necessarily what they're achieving and the value that they're getting in terms of solving the problem. So how do you, right now, what are some of the categories you think of, in, of as in, um, in terms of usage? And then, you know, I guess, how do you try and, and make that a category that is leading if it, if it can be? Well, I don't, I don't think it can be leading. Um, but, you know, the, the standard usage metrics, I think, are good, which is breadth, depth, and frequency of usage. I think all companies have some uh, flavors of that, those three categories when they're measuring usage. The, here, here's the problem with, with usage with respect to um, detecting health risk. Um, if, and I, and I found this to be true for most companies I've spoken to, if the customer is not using the product, obviously you've got a problem. So red alert, figure out what went wrong with that customer. If the customer is using the product, um, who knows whether or not they're going to renew. Um, you know, Nick met at Gainsight, wrote an article in October of last year, kind of with a similar sentiment. And the, um, here's an example of what I'm talking about. This happened to us at user testing, especially in the early days, less so more, rec more recently. We would have customers that were massive evangelists of the product. They were using it every day, multiple times per day. Uh, they would share the, the insights across uh, the company into the product and the marketing teams and the UX and design teams. And then one day we come to work and that person has left the company. And guess what? That account, that you know, several hundred thousand dollar account is gone all of a sudden. And my health score said it was green. So how did we go from a green account that's suddenly gone? I mean, that's, and, and so that, those are the types of problems that happen when you are looking at usage. Um, you're not actually identifying, the only time you're identifying risk is when the, the product is not being used. If the product is being used, you have to look at all the other factors that uh, are true, what I believe are true indicators of risk to detect whether or not you actually have a problem in, in that account. Yeah, and everybody has different indicators of risk or success is what it sort of comes down to. Similar story, I used to work for a company and we, we sold HR technology, which to hourly, basically companies that employed hourly workers. So if you didn't use the technology, you couldn't hire people to staff your, your business. So you literally, it was compulsory, like you had to use it. So we would never know. Usage always looked good, right? But then the company would get bought by somebody. So business, you know, changed dramatically. We lose a stakeholder to your point. And all of a sudden, there's a new, you know, competitive threat in there at renewal. So, yeah, I mean, usage alone doesn't tell you anything. So, I guess the question then is, how do we layer in relationship indicators that, you know, there's some account management things, right? Like, okay, we know there's a competitor in there. We know there's, um, we know that th this account falls into a segment that is highly competitive with, you know, somebody that is, is in our space. Um, but, how do you incorporate the relationship factor in there? Are we too dependent on a relationship and not dependent enough on the core value that the product provides 
do we not have enough relationships globally, that type of thing? Well, so one of, one of the four buckets um, that I mentioned at the beginning was customer maturity. And I think under customer mm -hmm. matur the maturity of the customers, the customer's ability to adopt your product and get value out of it over the long haul. That's, that's how I think about maturity. And so, um, you know, one of the questions that you need to answer under maturity is who advocates for the product? What's their authority and has it changed? And by the way, change could be new boss, company was acquired, any change in, in, in the authority of that, of your main points, uh, points of contact. And so I think, you know, it's up to every company to decide what the playbooks are, depending on whether or not you have, um, you know, a low influence stakeholder in the company, or you don't have enough stakeholders, maybe two isn't enough, maybe you need seven. Uh, maybe you need a, at least a director in order for your product to renew, because if you have a manager or below, you don't renew. I've seen companies, I mean, there are very, I, I like the simple one, the one, two, three, which is uh, one executive yeah. spot. Yeah, you, you've seen that one? Yep. I just saw that the other day. Yeah, say it though. It's, good. it's really good. Yeah. One, one executive sponsor, uh, two champions, and three power users. And if you have that structure in place, you can suffer the loss of any one of those and still recover the account. Yeah. It's like a nice, solid GP. Triangle, so that, and that, yeah. by the way, that's, that's, that's one example that companies are going after. I think every chief customer officer has to come up with their own kind of standards of what they expect um, yeah. upon renewal. And that, that would be one of the four or five questions that you'd want to answer under the maturity bucket to detect if you have maturity risk in the account. So how do you differentiate that? And I know we want to move on to a different topic, but how do you differentiate that from the, from the people category then? Okay, so people is about, you, you actually brought up recently, Jay, actually you both brought it up. Um, uh, the, the topics under people are uh, the, the quality and speed to value of the onboarding, uh, the quality of onboard, you know, ongoing training, um, how the customer feels about their experience with the CSM, the services team and support. And then finally, a big one is a trust factor, which um, I think largely goes missed by most companies, which is, does the product and service match or exceed the customer's expectations? So this happens a lot when the salesperson has oversold the deal um, and then they get to the customer success team and they realize, oh my gosh, this is not what I signed up for. Um, talk about destroying trust in the relationship right off the bat. Um, yeah. Same thing can happen at the renewal time. You know, the, the CSM wants to get the renewal. They overpromise that a product, that a, that a feature could be delivered on time or that uptime will improve. And there you go. Your trust is out the window. And again, the account is at risk. So those are the, those are the buckets that I put under people. And I think you, you might track those under a different bucket, but I put them under the people bucket. Yeah. I, think I like it. Yeah. I like the, and, and two, I think largely um, one of the things that I think we, we see is undervalued that I like that you specifically call out to is the time to value. Um, and, you know, time to almost first value, realize value, uh, however you want to think about, but getting somebody through that process successfully. And then the training piece, um, we worked with a client recently and they um, recognized that they had a, a large churn happening at year one renewals. And what they did is they actually tracked that back through a series of surveys uh, back into the onboarding piece. And they had done surveys right around onboarding and after these companies got implemented. And some of the questions were uh, fairly simple and straightforward, but it was like, do you feel like you're successfully trained on our product to achieve you know, your desired outcome. Have we successfully delivered training? How quick was our time to value? And uh, pretty quickly what they realized is that they weren't delivering uh, any of those things adequately enough and in a timely enough manner, right? And onboarding. And so uh, really cool way though to dissect, I think like you're getting at as well, that 
here's, you know, kind of churn in year one renewals. And let's actually track that back to an onboarding activity, which seems, you know, kind of opposite. Uh, but it really was uh, so impactful that they, you know, dedicated a session. We had 20 people going through kind of a, a journey design specifically around that onboarding piece. And almost like let's map the first 30, 60, 90 days as a customer um, and really what we're doing, how to coordinate all these things and make sure it's working appropriately. Well, that, that's a, that is a perfect example of using a survey. You know, normally you have to wait 12 months to see whether or not the onboarding process worked. But here's an example of a company, you guys helped a company deploy a survey to get feedback about their onboarding process immediately that led to action to improve the overall customer experience and customer journey. So I love that. I mean, that's what, you know, that's what we're, what, that's what I've said it's all about. It's, you know, detect, detect problems early and trigger actions. And that's what you, that's what you did. Uh, so that's an interesting topic that we haven't really, or I feel very uneducated on is around uh, kind of the AI side, the artificial intelligence side of the world. And um, I know you called that out specifically as, as something that is, um, you know, you guys are leveraging at enough said and how you guys are thinking about, you know, rolling out the product. So, um, you know, maybe give me a little bit of a, a short education just on how you how you guys have gone to think about, you know, using AI and using that type of technology to really help drive some of the decision making and actioning that you can get from the data that you guys are, are pulling in. Yeah, you know, um, so a, AI is, is um, it, it might, it's probably overused by most companies. A lot of times what's actually being deployed is machine learning. But what, what, what uh, in order for the computer to help you make decisions and help you focus, it needs to have a massive data set to review to see what types of communication information leads to activities and outcomes for uh, the, the role the department. And so, for example, for our product, what we're doing in the early days is feeding the AI um, communication data, you know, Salesforce data, Gainsight data, Zendesk, Mixpanel, all these places where data is being collected. We're feeding all that to the brain and we're looking at what types of behaviors or activities each CSM is doing. And then we're comparing though that CSM's success long-term compared to other people that look like them. So other company, you know, other software companies or other large software companies or small SMBs, you know. Um, so we're, we're, what, what we're doing is we're, we're, we're um, putting in some parameters into the in a term, our machine learning algorithm to sort and compare different types of users with each other, with users from other industries. And then over time, and, and again, sometimes it takes months, it takes years to get it right. Uh, but over time, the computer can do a good job of identifying trends and then surfacing actions and um, activities that should happen based on other best practices that it has detected elsewhere. And so that's, that's really all AI is doing. It's, it's teaching, it's allowing the computer to learn from trends that it's seen across a large data set. Yeah. Are there, um, one of the things that Jay and I've been talking about recently too, are just uh, interesting industries or companies that are solving interesting problems kind of in industries. So do you feel like they're outside of, you know, what enough said is doing, have you thought about, uh, I don't know, other applications for like where AI is or machine learning, you know, whichever uh, verbiage, but uh, that is maybe under leveraged right now where there's, you know, massive data sets that, you know, is kind of greenfield. Yeah, it's a great question. <laughs> I would say just, just in general, this, the concept of AI is so new. There's no, there is no winning use case for AI yet. So I'd, I'd say it, everything is greenfield and everyone's trying to figure out the, you know, what the killer use cases for AI will be. I, I think we have one of them. Um, but, you know, I think AI, you know, probably in the early days will show up more in consumer products because there are, the data sets are much larger for consumer companies than B2B companies. So things like 
self-driving cars or Amazon with shopping algorithms. I think those companies are more likely to come up with early versions of AI. By the way, Amazon right now doesn't run on AI at all. Their, their shopping algorithm is all rules-based. But they have an opportunity to introduce some AI um, into their platform in the future. Oh um, so any, long story short, I don't, think, I don't think there is a killer use case today. I think uh, if I was building, you know, if I was an entrepreneur thinking about just AI only and not other problems, I probably would do a, a B2C company first because of, of the access to massive data sets. Um, so, uh, you know, I'm excited. I'm excited by the technology and I, you know, we'll see where, where the world goes in the future. Hey, Chris, who are you guys, who, maybe you don't know this yet. Maybe you're still figuring out, but who, who is your ideal client at said? Yeah. So, um, early days, it's probably similar to how you think about your target customer. It's going to be a company, a mid-sized company, let's say 10 to 50 CSMs and probably doing somewhere between 20 to $120 million in revenue. They're more likely to be a software company, but they could also be in financial services. Any, any company that manages a portfolio of, of customers would benefit from having this kind of brain helping you focus your time on uh, different parts of the, the portfolio. Got it. It's um, one of the things that we've started to both see, hear about and talk about and explore more is this idea that even um, companies that have not traditionally been software companies are becoming software companies. So um, maybe one of the most prominent examples that if you look on, you know, Zora's website or, or some of these others is like Briggs and Stratton, right? They're becoming a lawn care company, right? Not just a lawnmower company. They're thinking about the customer and not just the product. And so, um, you know, to me, maybe we, we have a biased view of this, but customer success gets way bigger from here, not smaller, even in the B2C realm, because it, the, the way that industries are thinking about um, the, the customer experience and the, the long tail of their customers and the lifetime value of their customers as being the really valuable thing and selling services, not one-time products, it's going to, it's going to necessitate it. So I'm just curious. That's why I asked you your ICP question. Cause I'm curious if um, you guys have looked, you know, much outside of tech yet. We, uh, we haven't, but only cause we're early on, but I, I like your perspective that, you know, we, we, we call customer success what it is today because it's, you know, kind of born out of an account management function. It was traditionally uh, a one-to-one -one relationship with the company uh, for SMB companies or B2C companies. We just, we called that function customer support, but functionally they were responsible for creating the same types of delightful experiences as customer success, just at a lower, in a lower, lower touch point way. Um, so I, um, I, I, that's a really interesting perspective that long-term customer success could be expanded to even low touch point experiences as well. I haven't spent much time honestly thinking about what that could look like, but it's a really, really interesting perspective. And even for a company like Briggs and Stratton, it's true, you know, they don't want to sell, you know, snowblowers. They want to sell a clear driveway. That's, 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 yeah. that's, that's, that's the, the solution to the problem. And so if you think about the problem that way, it's not just about selling a product with some support. It's, it's let's provide a solution to the problem for customers. Yeah. And even, even companies like GE, like GE Digital has, well, I think GE Digital is not quite a thing anymore, but airplane engines, right? They're basically on lease and there's all kinds of tele telemetry data that, that, that comes with those now. And there's a whole solution that comes with the hardware. So even in B2B, anyway, I, I, you know, I think this, if you just go search LinkedIn, 
And I know there's some studies out there too. I think Gainsight did one of them on just the growth of customer success as a profession. It's, it's sort of massive. And I, I agree with you. I think some of it is just a conversion. People are converting account management into customer success, but they're slowly starting to change the mindset around it as well, this whole customer-centric mindset. And so the good news is for what you're doing is it feels like your TAM is growing naturally, not you know staying stagnant. And for us too, I guess, for that matter. Yeah, and, and you know, remember, we're, we're building a brain for each department in the company. So obviously we're starting with customer success, but the way that we, we grow our, ta our TAM long-term is by providing that same brain to other functions. But going back to this, this, customer, uh, this customer success concept, I'm curious, um, this, this is a very, very interesting idea that customer success, like customer support goes away completely. And the only function that you have in your company is customer success. And you have a, a low touch customer success team and you have a high touch customer success team. Is that kind of how you were thinking about, is it when, you, when you're thinking about it in your head, is that how you were positioning it? Not quite. So I, I don't think support goes away. I think, you know, we, we talk about support being like the, we use the word dial tone or the phrase dial tone all the time to talk about support because half the time when we walk into a company, if they're trying to get more proactive with their customers and, and get more engaged and strategic and how they're driving that relationship forward, if support's busted or if engineering isn't able to fix things fast enough, the whole thing implodes and everybody becomes support. Um, you know, we, we were working with a company the other day and, you know, their CSMs have their own tracking spreadsheets of support tickets because they're having some challenges with support right now. They're all being drawn down. They're being knocked down a rung on the ladder so they can't be strategic. So I actually think support is critical to having a great customer success strategy and customer success strategy being we are engaging with our largest customers one-on-one. -on -one. We have strategic proactive engagement one-to-many in our mid-tier and SMB tier so that we can drive retention and growth in those accounts and advocacy in those accounts. And that's just wholly a different thing to me than support. So that's my strong opinion on it. I don't know if you'd agree on, on that or not. Yeah, sorry, I, I kind of took us off, to off topic, but I, I was inspired by the idea that maybe at some point we, we think of all of our customers as being deserving of customer success and that what we're all ultimately aspiring towards is solving a customer's problem and that maybe in the future, we don't have a differentiation between support, which oftentimes we think of as a, as a cost center in the company versus customer success, which we think of as a revenue generation function in the company. So anyway, I think we, I took us way off topic here, but it's, it's a kind of an interesting thought exercise. No, it's, it's great. I, and I, I think if you're going to take the time to sell a customer, then yes, they all deserve customer success. That doesn't, when we translate that, it doesn't mean you get a dedicated person with that title, right? It means right. you get the outcome, however that gets delivered. And that may be through, you know, self-service and, you know, we're feeding you programmatic tools to onboard appropriately. And like, it's going to come in a lot of different shapes and sizes. CSMs are just one small facet of a whole company focus on, on customer success. And I know I'm preaching to the choir here, but yeah, but you know, and by the way, we might end up cutting this section out and that's fine. Um, the, the, no. the, where I'm going with this is even at user testing, for example, in our SMB group, we, we couldn't afford, we couldn't justify the cost of having a full-time dedicated CSM for all of our SMB clients. It just financially wasn't, it didn't make sense. Yep. So one, one uh, CSM was responsible for, 250, 300, sometimes 500 customers when we were stretching too far. So at that point, what is that job? Is that job customer success? Is that job customer support? I don't know. It's, you, you kind of start to blend the line. The, the lines start to get blurred when you go from high touch enterprise uh, traditional CSM to uh, SMB, you know, 
500 accounts per CSM to support where support might manage 1,000 or 2,000 customers over the course of a year. Um, so anyway, it's an interesting topic, probably not more for today, but um, maybe there could be some interesting content there in the future. Hey guys, thanks so much for taking the time to listen to the Gain, Grow, Retain podcast. If you liked what you heard, please take a moment and share the podcast with your friends and colleagues and subscribe. We really appreciate it. Talk to you soon.